podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Two Footed Podcast. It is Monday, the 28th of June. We're brought to you by EPLindex.com in association with our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. It's a virtual privacy network. Allows you to go online, access American Netflix, access Canadian Netflix, use your Now TV outside the UK. Also keeps your data safe. That's the most important thing online in this day and age. Check out LibertyShield.com and use the code EPLVPN to get 20% off at checkout. If you are an expat and you really want to watch British coverage of the Olympics, a Liberty Shield VPN will allow you to change your location, remember, so you can access that good BBC content free of charge. Rightio, um, we're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland but shipping worldwide, homeofhopcroft.co. UK. Folks, I'm having a bad day. I'm having a very bad day. Hay fever is kicking my ass all, all day. Uh, and I've been suspended off Twitter for no apparent reason. Again, uh, no reason given by Twitter. No length of time. No idea. So I may have to start a new account. Um, if I do, I'll get Guy and Gags and a few others to tweet it out so you know what it is. Um but I am fighting the good fight. I have registered a complaint and, a, and, a, and an appeal to hopefully get my account unlocked. We had four games in the Euros over the weekend, so let's rattle through those. We had Denmark 4, Wales 0. Denmark, very, very impressive. Kasper Dahlberg, his first start in the tournament, comes off a bad season and just washes it all away. Two great goals. The first one is a brilliant finish. Curled round the goalkeeper, kept it just the far side of the post and then bent it back in. Beautiful goal from Dahlberg to put the Danes one up. Defensive disaster from Nico Williams, who'd come on for Connor Roberts, who'd had to go off hurt. Gifts, gifts the Danes a second goal, which Dahlberg finishes brilliantly. Wales, to their credit, put up a bit of a fight. They did try. They kept attacking. But unfortunately, I said on Friday... They need Bale or Ramsey or both to really perform, and unfortunately neither of them did on the day. Denmark would make it uh, three through Joachim Mal, who's making a case to be in the team of the tournament. He's been brilliant. And Martin Braithwaite on 94, making it 4-0. Harry Wilson sent off for the Welsh. I thought harshly, but it really didn't make any difference. I mean, the game was over at that point anyway. It was 3-0. It was inconsequential. Uh, but Denmark threw very, very impressive. I, I love how they're playing. I, they've changed their, st- their style, obviously, without Ericsson, and they've gone to that back three. And they're playing in a very vertical way. They're getting the ball forward quickly. Nice passing triangles, loads of movement, lots of aggression in how they're playing on and off the ball. But for the first 15 minutes or so of this game, 
They struggled to have control in the midfield. Wales had three in there to Denmark's two. So massive credit goes to the Danish manager, Casper uh, Humland, who took Andreas Christensen from that right-side centre-back role and put him at the base of the midfield. And that presence blocked the Welsh runners from midfield and also helped Denmark wrestle back control. Very, very impressive. Then switched back once they got their lead and were comfortable. Really, really good performance. Christensen on the day was was excellent. Um, I had hoped that what we'd see was Dan James against Vestergaard. Instead, Rob Page went 4-2-3-1, played James on the left and Bale on the right, and I just didn't think it worked at all. I really wanted to see them get Dan James on Vestergaard and try and run him because Vestergaard will do silly things and you, you can definitely expose the flaws in his game defensively. Get on his outside and sprint and he will struggle to keep up. But Wales played right into the Danish hands and um, and Dan- Denmark punished them. They really did punish them. Dahlberg, who of course came through at Ajax and, and became a bit of a star there. This was his previous home stadium. He's had a tough time the last few years, but it was really good to see him back amongst the goals. I thought Mikael Darmsgaard had a great game for the Danes as well. What an impressive player he is at only 20 years of age. And when you think of him, Dahlberg, and Andreas Skov Olsen on the bench, who, who didn't get on, like, that's a very talented attacking trio that they have in the long term. I wonder if Dahlberg will keep his place now over Polson. Uh, who'd, who'd done pretty well in the tournament and gotten a couple of goals, but on this on this performance, it's going to be hard to drop Dahlberg. I think he will start the next round. I hope he does anyway. Uh, but there's a lovely balance to this Danish team at the moment, and you have to admire how they're playing. Second game, Italy 2, Austria 0. Oh, Austria 1, rather. A pretty good game. I thought Austria played really well for the 90 minutes. Franco Foda thankfully stuck with that 4-2-3-1 and it really frustrated Italy. I thought Barella had a poor game in midfield. Now Verratti was very, very good and Jorginho was quite good but Barella had a poor game and that cost Italy some of their dynamism going forward. I thought Italy became quite predict- uh, predictable in this game because Denmark played Lehmer and uh, Baumgartner as their wingers. They're both players who are very, very happy to track fullbacks and to make runs defensively. So you had Lamer on Spinozola, you had um, Baumgartner on Di Lorenzo, and they were happy to track them, which took out a lot of the interplay that Italy had been using in the earlier rounds. Because Insigne always wants to cut inside onto his right foot, Berardi always wants to cut inside onto his left foot. Those two were naturally providing the width. With Lehmer and Baumgartner tracking back, they weren't able to expose any any space. I thought Alaba and, and Stefan Leiner played a nice narrow fullback. Really did a job on Insigne and Berardi. Berardi, who'd been brilliant in the first two games, obviously didn't play in the Welsh game. He was really, really out of sorts in this game. Just could not figure out David Alaba at all. Couldn't find the weakness in him. When Federico Chiesa came on, naturally right-footed, can go both ways. I thought it made things a lot tougher for Alaba. Into uh, extra time we went. Chiesa gets the first goal. Really well worked. Alaba should have done better. Didn't 
didn't pressure, didn't cover across, gave Chiesa the chance, great left-footed volley. Um, Matteo Pessina, who, again, I'm not a huge fan of, but he's having a good tournament, goals now in back-to-back games. He will remain, I think, at least fifth midfielder. I don't imagine a situation where he starts other than people getting injured because Barella will remain ahead of him, as will Jorginho, as will Verratti, and as will Locatelli. But as a fifth midfielder, I mean, he's a really good option to have. And as with Joe Kimala, an Atalanta player picked up off the scrap heap or on a short contract, a bargain price, you, you see what they do with players. They develop them so well. Um, Sasa Kalicic made a 2-1 header on uh, 114 minutes, 115 minutes from a set piece. And Italy had a nervous last five. They did. They did have a nervous last five, but they go through. This was their worst performance of the tournament so far. I expect that we'll see more from them in the next round. They're going to have to be better in the next round. But job done. Through they go. Austria can go home with their heads held high. This was a good performance. They were good in the last game against the Ukraine. It put to bed the poor performances that they'd had against North Macedonia and against the Netherlands. The 4-2-3-1 just worked so much better. What I saw after the game, though, was Guy and Balaga and a couple of others, um, but Balaga, the most notable of them, come out and criticise Franco Foda. Now, there's a lot to criticise Foda for, those first two games being the ones. There was nothing to criticise him for yesterday. He got his tactics absolutely spot on yesterday. What he got undone by was that Italy just had a far higher quality of substitution to bring on. Like, with respect, the players that Austria brought on, Ilsanker, Gregorich, Trimmel, Schaub, Schopp, and Kalasic, they're good players. But Italy brought on Locatelli, who's one of the most sought-after midfielders in Europe this summer. Andrea Bellotti, who a couple of summers ago, there was a £100 million price tag on his head. Matteo Pessina, who's in good form, a, a, a good midfielder. Federico Chiesa, who Juventus paid £65 million for him. He's a top-class player. Brian Cristanti, I'm not a huge fan of, uh, but he's a, he's a good, solid midfielder. The calibre of player that Italy could just pluck from the bench was just far higher than that that Austria could rely on. And the Austrians put in an awful lot of work trying to win the ball back, trying to be solid defensively, trying to cut off passing lanes, trying to keep everything nice and tight, that when their players got tired, they just didn't have the quality to bring on to replace them, whereas Italy did. Now, obviously, look, there's a bit of a... There is a drop-off from Barella and Verratti to Locatelli and Pessina, but when Locatelli and Pessina are in great form, that drop-off isn't as, as much as it normally would be. There's a drop-off from Immobile to Bellotti, but it's not a huge drop-off. Bellotti's a very, very good player. He might not be the natural goal scorer that Immobile is, but his all-round game is probably a little bit better. And then, again, you're bringing on the likes of Chiesa for Berardi. It's... There's a real argument that Chiesa's the better player. Berardi suits what the system normally functions as a little bit better, but Chiesa's the better player. That's where Austria got undone. That's not a reason to criticise Franco Foda. He's not a great manager, but he did a good job in in these last two games. So for Balaga, who, remember, is the guy who leapt to Pep Guardiola's defence after the Champions League final to say that you shouldn't criticise managers after a game. 
for him to then come out and do that was just a shambles. Um, that's a very now. I personally wouldn't be a fan of um, Balaga's stuff at all. I think he's an, a mediocre journalist with mediocre connections and really poor views on the game. But he is very well connected, and he has a big following. He is quite an influential voice. Funnily enough, he's not nearly as highly rated in his homeland as he is in the UK. It's the same as the spoofer with the catchphrase. An afterthought in Italy, seen as a god in the UK. Balaga was the same. When when there was loads of Spanish players in England in the 2000s, Balaga popped up here, there, and everywhere. He'd be on every radio show, every TV show. Then into the 2010s, started popping up on podcasts here and there, people getting the expert insight. And he didn't know what he was talking about. Like, he, he built a reputation on being Spanish, not having these great contacts. He's not nearly as highly regarded in Spain as he is in the UK. But he's tweeting in English to a largely UK-based fan base who are looking at that and thinking, well, the Austria's manager must be an idiot. But he's not. He's he's done a decent job. First two games aside, but again, I, I think the North Macedonia game was the, the back three was a trial run for what he was planning against the Dutch. I think he wanted the back three against the Dutch because he thought that gave him the best opportunity to try and nullify them because he knew the Dutch are going to play with wing-backs, I'm going to go with wing-backs and try and match them man for man, but I'm going to use attacking or attack-minded player on one side and try and force back Denzel Dumfries. It didn't work. Lots of stuff doesn't work. Doesn't mean he should be castigated by Ian Balligan for it. Um, into Saturday, so that was Saturday, into Sunday, the first big shock of the knockouts, Netherlands nil, Czech Republic 2. It all seemed to be going quite comfortably for the Netherlands. They were in control. They looked the better team. And then all of a sudden, Daniel Malin goes through one-on-one and fluffs his lines. Vaklik makes a really good save, comes out, gets at his feet. And within a minute, the ball is going down the other end. Now, just on Vaklik, actually, he's had a great Euros and he's available on a free this summer. So I'd imagine more and more clubs will start to become interested in him. Top clubs will want him as a really good backup. And then sort of mid-range, lower-end clubs will want him as a starter. He'll have plenty of options. Anyway, ball goes down the far end. Schick versus Delict. I don't know what Matthias Delict does. He gets himself in an absolute mess. Let's the ball bounce. Misjudges the bounce. Turns, slips. And handles the ball. Swipes his hand at the ball to knock it away. All he needed to do was fall on the ball. If he'd just fallen on the ball, yeah, he might have handled it and he would have got a yellow card for that. It would have been a slip, an accidental handball. If he'd fallen on it and just lain on the ball, if he could have trapped the ball under himself, it's an indirect free kick and no worries. Again, maybe a yellow card, but nothing to worry about. But the fact that he swipes at the ball with his hand, he gets a yellow initially, VAO review, it's a red, it's a deserved red, it's an obvious red. Off he goes, and from there, Dutch just capitulated. I mean, this was amateur hour stuff from Frank de Boer. Really, really poor management. Now, I would have started Veghorst up front because I think he would have given you more of a threat. 
than Malin in terms of causing a physical battle with those Czech centre-backs. But what he does after the sending off is just bizarre. The changes he makes, the shape he uses, and the fact that he just sort of sat there looking gormless was really, really unsettling to see. This is not a man who belongs at this level of management anymore, I'm afraid. When he became a manager at Ajax, I, I, I thought this guy's going to be really good. He won four titles in three and a half years. Ajax hadn't won the title in four or five years before that. He looked like he was going to be able to do a real job. And he went to Inter Milan. It was a disaster. He gets himself sacked. He goes to Crystal Palace. It was a disaster. He gets sacked. He goes to Atalanta United, who at the time were the best team in, in North America, or at least in, in the USA. And um, he makes them worse. And then somehow he lands this job when Koeman walks out, probably because he was the new big-name Dutch person available or willing. But I don't think he can survive after this. I mean, the Netherlands should have gone on to at least the semi-final stage. The, the path was there for them. Win this game, you'll face Denmark. Yes, it'll be tough, but you'll still have the quality, you have the talent to beat Denmark. And then you'll play likely Germany or, or England, and, and again, you can beat either of those teams. Now, I know it's difficult, they lost Van Dijk, but they've had the better part of a year to plan for how they're going to function without Van Dijk. And he just, he got it wrong. He got it wrong over and over again. And the team, they looked rudderless. Once the lick went off, they looked, just looked completely lost. Ginny Wijnaldum had a stinker. I thought Darun had a stinker. Van Anhold was poor. I didn't think Memphis played particularly well. Dumfries had a good early spell in the game and then started to look a bit shaky. I thought Malin looked good. I did, but I, th I think he would have been even better if you brought him on for the last 30. Um, even if you could have been bringing him on after the red card, full of pace, full of energy, full of movement, that could have caused problems. You could have gone with the 4-4-1 and played him wide. To not bring on Gravenberch at all when you're trying to chase a game is very, very strange. Uh, Tomas Holler's made it 1-0 with a good goal, and then he set up Patrick Schick, uh, who made it 2. That's Schick's fourth goal of the competition. He's in great form, and he, he played really well throughout the game. His hold-up play was good. He worked very, very hard. Chase lost causes. Patrick Schick's a good player. He's he's had some bad luck. He should have left. He should have stayed at Sampdoria a, a year or two longer. The Roman move came too soon, and then obviously going on to Leipzig on loan, and now Leverkusen hasn't always had the most supportive coaches. Hasn't always had the best environment around him. The year at, at Leipzig went quite well, and then they made the decision not to sign him. Uh, I think that knocked his confidence heading into this past season. But he's a quality player, and he'll he'll go on to do well for somebody if he leaves Leverkusen. Uh, but massive credit to the Czechs. I mean, talk about making the most of what you have. It's not a team full of stars. Schick, Suchek, Sufal, they're quality players. Uh, Janko off the bench, Adam Plazic, very, very good, Alex Kral, very, very good. But it's a team of players that are really, re really well schooled, really well drilled, and really go to battle for each other. The game with them and Denmark, which is the quarterfinal that we now have lined up, is going to be the two teams that most want to play for each other. They want to play for their mates. They want to make sure that they're not letting their mates down.
I think that's actually going to be one of the most enjoyable games of this tournament is Denmark against the Czechs because the way the Danes are playing, how aggressive they are and how aggressive the Czechs are in winning the ball back, how aerially dominant they are, how physical they can be as well. I think that's going to be a very, very entertaining game. So I'm looking forward to that one. That is the first quarterfinal that we had set. And um, yeah, the, the Dutch go out and, and I think I think De Boer will probably lose his job. I'd be surprised. The only thing is, with the World Cup being so close, it's only 18 months away, and with the lack of available high-end managers, and the Netherlands will not go outside their own pool, maybe he hangs on. But for me, I'd be looking to move on. I mean, I just don't know how you get so little out of that squad in a game like that when you had such a clear path to at least make the semi-finals. Second game of Sunday, Belgium won, Portugal nil. The holders are out, Belgium move on, but at a cost. Kevin De Bruyne injured, gone off. Eden Hazard, now he went off with a hamstring issue. Allegedly it's just some tightness, so hopefully he'll be alright for the next game, which is Friday, so not a long recovery. But it looks like De Bruyne could miss the next game. Um, he's had ankle problems for a couple of years caused him to miss a substantial amount of Premier League football and now it's you know it's it's back that the tackle wasn't a particularly bad one but it left him in a heap um Torgan Hazard got the winner for Belgium on 42 really well taken goal great strike question marks over Rui Patricio's positioning but the strike is, is unquestionable um a bit of a surprising approach to this game by Roberto Martinez, happy to let the Portuguese have the ball. The ex- expectation was that Portugal would be happy for Belgium to have the ball. They'd sit back, they'd try and soak up pressure, and then spring counterattacks using Cristiano and Diogo Jota. Instead, what we got was Belgium happy to sit back, soak up pressure, and then spring counters using Lukaku, Hazard, and the pace on the wings uh, from Torgan Hazard and uh, Mounier. Really interesting game. Not the most entertaining game, not the game we thought it would be. I thought Portugal were desperate for about 80 minutes. Um, and then once they, they started to have a go, they did look dangerous. Uh, I have to criticise one of my all-time favourite players, who's also one of my favourite pundits. I, I thought Roy Keane's comments after the game, especially on Jeff Felix, were way out of line. Um, he's a 21-year-old kid, been thrown on and told, go and save us. Uh, after nothing from from most of the starters. I thought Renato Sanchez was probably Portugal's best player on the day. And when he went off, you, you, you could feel the energy drop. Now, they again, they did become more adventurous. They got, it was more desperate than anything, though. There was no real structure to what they were trying to do. It was get it in the box and get a shot off and hope for the best. You never really felt Thibaut Courtois was being stretched. They did have the one shot that hit the post from Guerrero. Uh, by the way, how bad was the pitch in that stadium? That pitch is not used regularly. That's not the Real Betis Stadium or the Sevilla Stadium. That was built for a failed Olympic bid and doesn't get a whole bunch of use and yet doesn't seem to get maintained at a high level. It's uh, it's meant to be, the, the idea is that it's it's to be the, the home of the Spanish national team, um, which has obviously caused 
some arguments in Madrid. Um, but I thought the quality of the pitch was so poor. Cristiano had probably his best game of the tournament so far. Didn't score, obviously. Um, but he actually looked like he was getting involved. He looked like he was trying. He was dropping off, picking the ball up, beating a player, feeding it forward, moving on, rather than just standing and waiting for things to happen. He actually decided to make them happen himself. And I thought it was his best game of the tournament. Um, if he, maybe if he'd done that in a couple of the earlier games, they might have gotten through in a higher position rather than going through in third. They might have gone through in second and played England. They might have even won the group because not like France looked hugely impressive and they'd be playing Switzerland now. Um, I don't think it's the end of the line for Cristiano. I think we'll see him at the World Cup for sure. It wouldn't surprise me if we see him at the next Euros because I think, obviously, he's fit enough to do it. I mean, the guy is in incredible shape. He takes great care of himself, spends a fortune on on his nutrition and his workout routines and personal trainers and got a whole bunch of people around him. He's got his own sports scientists that work exclusively with him, not just with with, uh, Juventus. So he does put a lot of money into making sure he's always in peak physical condition. But when I look at that Portuguese squad, I think, now I, I could be wrong. I don't think I am wrong, but I could be wrong. I think they will be a better team when he's not in the team. I think they'd be better off if he was an impact sub coming off the bench. Because when you look at the other players, I think Andres, like, look at Ronaldo's career. Players that have played with him have always had a drop in their numbers goals-wise. And I wonder if you played, just as an example, if you played Andre Silva as the nine with, let's just say, Bernardo Silva, Bruno Fernandes, and Joe Felix as the three behind. Then you still have Jota, you still have uh, Pedro Concalves as options to use in those roles as well. I think that functions better than what we've seen from Portugal in this tournament. You get a midfield two of Renato and either, I mean, it could be Paulinha, it could be Carvalho, it could be Ruben Neves, whichever setup you want to use, whichever duo you want to use. I think that for balance and for getting the most out of the individuals would do more than what we've seen this team do with Cristiano, where I don't know whether it's a fear thing or a, a purely a respect thing or whatever it is. The whole team is built to feed him and get the most out of him. And I don't know that at this point in his career, he's good enough to warrant that. Like we've seen Juventus do it as well. And, their Champions League form has gotten worse with him in the team than it did before he arrived. They've also fallen off in the league and their you know, dominance of the league is over. He's still obviously a tremendous goal scorer, but I don't think he's a great player anymore because I don't think he does enough in open play. I think when he wants to, he can still do it, but he can only do it now in fits and starts. He can't do it over the course of 90 minutes the way he could say, even four or five years ago. He's still an incredible goal scorer. But I just, 
I just think that the team would be would benefit from him taking a step back as an impact option off the bench, along with the likes of Jota and Concalves, or Jota could start and any of the three behind could drop out, or you could change shape, whatever you want to do. Uh, Concalves is good enough to start. Um, there's there's loads of options there. I just I feel like Cristiano would benefit more. If he could come on and give you, say, 20 minutes of absolutely everything he has, rather than 90 minutes of trying to manage his way through games, I think you'd, you'd be better, he'd be better, he'd be more impactful. I know he got five goals in the tournament, but like, let's look at the five goals. Penalties and tappings. Absolutely nothing else going on. Little involvement in the build-up play. Now, I know it was his header that led to one of his tapping goals on the counter-attack, but for me, he's just not offering enough. And I think Portugal would be better if they just moved on. Move him into a different role. He'll still get his appearances. He'll still grab goals. He'll score goals off the bench, no problem. And like I say, if you're getting 20 minutes of everything he can give you, I think that's going to be more beneficial to the team as a whole and to him. And I also think it helps his legacy because people will say, well, look at, look at that man being willing to transition into a new phase of his career, being that impact. So being that 12th man who comes on, gets goals, comes on and impacts games. I think that can help. Um, he was cry arson about wanting his Jews. Doesn't feel he's gotten the credit he's due. I'm sorry. What? You've got a bunch of Ballon d'Or sitting in your gaff that you didn't deserve. Sit down. Be quiet. Um, so yeah, Belgium through. Question marks over KDB for the next game. They will play Italy. That's the second quarterfinal that we now have set. I think that's going to be a hell of a game. If, if KDB's out, I think Italy have to be favourites. If he's back, I think it's a very, very even game. Uh, we have two games tonight. We have Croatia versus Spain. Croats have been hit and miss in this tournament. Uh, poor versus England. Not great versus the Czechs. Pretty good against the Scots. Spain, I mean, I don't even know. Uh, awful against Sweden. Passed the air out of the ball. Awful against Poland. Again, passed the air out of the ball. Um, scored five against Slovakia, but... They, didn't really impress. I mean, Dubravka kickstarted the whole thing, and the te- the Slovakians just kind of fell apart. I don't think Enrique knows what his best eleven is. I don't think he knows what centre back pairing he wants. I don't think he knows who his right back is. I think he knows what his midfield is. I just don't agree with it. I don't think he has any idea what he wants up front. Oyarzabal, I think, has to play. If Morata is going to be your nine, you've got to go Oyarzabal one side and Ferran Torres the other. Because they'll get you your goals, and then Morata can do all the things that you want him to do, and you're not relying on him to get you goals. Um, I think this is an interesting game. Years years ago, it would have been a great game because you would have got these two teams in their prime. Now, I think key members of both teams are past their best. I'm looking forward to the, the Busquets-Modric battle in the midfield. I think that's going to have a big impact. No Ivan Perisic for the... The Croats, he is out with COVID. So you'd imagine Antti Rebic comes back into the team. Um, 
how the rest of it lines up. I think they've got a decision to make up front, but the rest of it should be fairly straightforward. But like I said, I don't think Spain know. I don't think Luis Enrique knows what, what, what his team is. I don't think he knows what his best team is. Um, he's tinkered throughout the group stage. He did the same thing in the warm-ups. I think he'd know by now. I'm going to pick Spain to win because I think they have more individual quality. But it wouldn't surprise me if the Croats just managed to grind out a win. They've got a really strong mentality. They've proven themselves on the international stage at the last World Cup. I wouldn't surprise me if they if they pulled off the win here. But I will go for a Spain win. Um, the other game then is France versus Switzerland. The French will be strong favourites in this game. The French should win this game, but they haven't played particularly well. Switzerland were good against Wales, poor against um, the Italians, but played really well against the Turks. Going forward, I think they can cause France some trouble. The problem is they're going to have very little of the ball, and for them to have very little of the ball, they've got a lot of passengers. Like, Seferovic is not great off the ball. Shakiri's flat out dreadful off the ball. Xhaka is poor off the ball. We'll try and win it back, but we'll give away a lot of free kicks. Uh, Ricardo Rodriguez doesn't really have any interest in defending anymore. I think they've got... They've got flaws that I think France will look to exploit. Now, it's been reported that France have been trialling playing a back three in, in training. Um... Swiss will go with wing back, so maybe it's to match up. Maybe it's having a look at the landscape of the tournament and seeing how many teams are using wing backs. I still think they'll go with a back four. I suppose it depends on whether Lucas Hernandez is fit. If he's fit, they'll go back four. If he's not, they might go with a back three with, with Rabio and Leo Dubois as wing backs. Either way, I think France will have enough. Griezmann's playing well. Benzema is playing well. Mbappe hasn't yet had that game where you go, right, that's why everybody wants him. That's why everybody rates him so highly. He hasn't had that game at these tournaments, at this tournament yet. I think he might have it tonight. I think the way the Swiss set up will leave a lot of space for him. I'm going to go with France to win, and I think they'll win fairly comfortably in the end, but I think it'll be a bit of a slog for maybe the first half an hour. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll get through the news and wrap up with the gossip. See you in a few. Right. Welcome back. Uh, so we have some news coming out of West Brom. Uh, a senior executive at West Brom and Albion attempted to negotiate a £25 million transfer deal that would have broken FIFA's regulations, avoided tax in China and possibly the UK, and enabled the English club's Chinese-majority shareholder and owner to keep some of the proceeds of the sale. Luke Dowling, who until two weeks ago was West Brom's technical and sporting director, initiated discussions with an agent with links to a club in China about the possible sale of Matthias Pereira. Chinese authorities have introduced new regulations to limit the spending of Chinese super clubs, who are obviously spending quite a lot of money, so I'm guessing... Luke Dowling was maybe going to try and sell the player to an agent who then loan him to clubs and start to make a bit of money that way. Uh, this may explain why Luke Dowling left in such strange circumstances, very, very quietly just resigned and walked away. And I'm guessing it was because 
this got uncovered. Now, I don't think Matthias Pereira would want to go and play in China. Uh, I don't think he'd have any interest in going to play in China. But this is an interesting story and definitely one to keep an eye on over the coming weeks in case there's more to it. Uh, Luke Shaw has been in the news. He has come out and done an interview, uh, asked a lot of questions about his relationship with Jose Mourinho, how that went, and why he feels the manager mistreated him. Uh, I thought Shaw handled it very well, answered the questions in a very mature manner. I I thought at the time, and I said it on multiple podcasts at the time, the way Mourinho treated him was just appalling. And I'm and I i I'm a Mourinho fan, but the way he treated Luke Shaw was absolutely shocking. And even when Luke Shaw would have a great game, he would say it was his body and my brain, making out that Luke Shaw was some sort of thicko. Luke Shaw was the best left back in the Premier League last season. So it's great to see him back at his best. He was playing tremendously well, if you if you remember, when Louis van Hal was at United, and then he had the broken ankle. And it took him a long time to come back from that, and it had taken him a while to get to that form as well after the move. From Southampton, I think it's fair to say he, he left Southampton too early, too young. Uh, but United paid big money and offered him huge wages. It was you know very hard to turn it down for both Southampton as a, as a club and for Shaw as an individual. Um, there's not a whole lot of else going on. Uh, Tottenham still don't have a manager. Uh, latest is that it's it's Nuno, who seems to be one of the favourites, but who knows? Crystal Palace still don't have a manager. Looked like it was going to be Lucien Favre after it had looked like it was going to be Nuno. Now it's neither. Um, Everton still don't have a manager. Now it does look like they're close on Rafa Benitez. However. Everton fans are not reacting well to this news. And they have taken to social media to voice the displeasure. They've also taken to scrolling on what look like bedsheets and hanging them on fences in the area in which Rafa Benitez lives with his wife and children. Now, that is so far out of line, it's very hard to put into words how out of line it is disgraceful behavior and everybody involved should be absolutely ashamed of themselves you may not like the idea of an ex-Liverpool manager becoming your manager and I, I can understand that if a, if an ex-Manchester United manager was to become Liverpool manager I would not be happy about it at all even if it was Alex Ferguson who's one of the greatest managers of all time you still wouldn't be happy about it but Rafa Rafa's the best you can get. Of the names out there, he's a better manager than Nuno. He's a better manager than Lucien Favre. He's a better manager than Graham Potter. Now, Ernesto Valverde, I would argue, is probably a better manager than Rafa now, but you haven't even been linked with him. There's been no mention of Ernesto Valverde to Everton. Now that, that's a little bit odd to me. I would have thought he would have been on the list given he's available. Um, but Rafa is a really good manager. He's not the great manager he was at Valencia and through his first four or five years at Liverpool up until the fallout with the owners really started to weigh on him and, and, you know, kind of hold him back. And then his falling out with Paco Yerestein and, he was never quite the same after he and Paco split. That was a great pairing. And oftentimes you'll see managers, when they lose their most trusted lieutenant, 
They're just never quite the same. Brian Clough, never the same without Peter Taylor. Mourinho, hasn't been the same without Rui Faria. Hasn't been close to the same guy. And I think Rafa with, with Paco was exactly the same. I thought together there was such a force. Without him, Rafa's still a very good manager, but it does, the, the greatness I don't think is there anymore. But he's done well at Chelsea, at Lazio, at Newcastle. It's not like he's been some bum doing a year here, getting sacked, going there, getting sacked. Rafa's been a really good manager at three clubs since leaving Liverpool. Now, he did have a bad spell at Inter Milan, but nobody could have walked into that job at that time and succeeded, in my view. Mourinho had won the Champions League. Mission accomplished. He'd left. And the owners of Inter Milan had made a decision that with the Champions League now won, they were going to pull back on spending. And it was quite an old squad, remember, that he took over. What Mourinho had done was he'd built a a very experienced squad that was probably due to be turned over at some point in the very near future. And when Rafa took over, I think his understanding was that he would get to do that, but a decision was made that they weren't going to spend big money, he wasn't going to get the backing he wanted. Like, you look through that team, Julio Cesar, Maicon, Lucio, Walter Samuel, they would have all been over 30 at the time in 2010. Christian Kivu would have been late late 20s, I'd imagine. Zanetti and Cambiasso would have been... Well, Zanetti was late 30s. Cambiasso would have been around 30 at the time. Wesley Schneider was right in his prime. Diego Melito, Samuel Eto'o, they were in their primes, but they were coming towards the tail end of them. But you could have still kept building around those three, but a lot of that back line would have needed to be replaced. The two in midfield, Zanetti and Cambiasso. Even a lot of the um, the key squad players. Backup goalkeeper Francesco Taldo would have been pushing 40. Ivan Cordoba would have been in his 30s. Matarazzi would have been in his 30s. Dejan Stankovic was in his 30s. And your only real young player... Well, there was two. There was uh, McDonald Mariga, who's a good player, not a great player. He's now retired, so he must have been... Yeah, he was 23 at the time. And the other one was Mario Balotelli. And I mean, you know, Mario is Mario. You don't know what you're going to get from him from, from, him from one minute to the next. It's always been strange to me that McDonald Mariega is Victor Winyama's brother. Oh, he's McDonald Mariega. Wanyama. I never knew that. I always thought he maybe a different dad or whatever. Um, yeah. Anyway, completely off topic. Um, yeah, he didn't have a whole lot of young players to build with. Wasn't been given the money. Was basically been expected to run it back. While at the same time, Inter were looking at maybe selling Schneider if a big offer came through. Uh, maybe selling Melito if they could get a good a good fee from. Melito was thirty one. Etu was 29. So there weren't there weren't young players in this team. Cambiasso was 30. What was Kivu? 
Kivu was 30. So actually, to be fair, the only players in their 20s, there was a couple of 29-year-olds, and Goran Pandev, who was 27, was the youngest player in that starting 11. Ten years later, he's still banging in goals at the Euros. Eleven years later, um, that's that was Rafa's big failure was Inter Milan. But after that, I mean, the, the the gig in China didn't go well. Fine, we did well at Chelsea, won them a Europa League, did well at Napoli, did well at Newcastle. I don't know what more people want from him. Yeah, he's not a title-winning manager anymore. I don't think. Maybe, maybe with the right backing, who knows? But he's certainly good enough to get Everton into the top seven or eight of the league, top six potentially. He's certainly a better manager than Oli Gunnar Solskjaer. He's a better manager than Brendan Rodgers. He's a better manager than David Moyes. He's a better manager than Mikel Arteta. Arsenal don't have, or Spurs don't have a manager, so he's better than whoever they have. He's also better than the names that have been linked with Bar Valverde. If you get Rafa, you're going to have one of the six or seven best managers in the league next season. Now, I know you thought Carlo was still the Carlo from Milan, from Chelsea, from Real. He's not. Carlo wasn't that guy anymore in the same way Rafa's not the guy he was anymore. But the gap between them is not massive. The gap between what they were then wasn't massive. The gap between what they are now is not massive. It's not a huge step down from Carlo the way Everton fans are making it out to be. I think Rafa would be a really good appointment for them. And I don't have any bitterness towards Rafa in wanting to go and do that. If he wants to go and manage Everton, crack on. Liverpool have moved on. Liverpool have a better manager now. They're an incredible team. They won the title last year. They won the Champions League the year before. They'll compete for both again next year. If Rafa wants to go and manage Everton, best of luck. He lives in the area. Why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he want to be close to home? I hope he goes there and has success, but Everton fans are absolutely losing their minds. To put up... First of all, is that your mum's bed sheet? Did you just steal it out of the linen closet? Or did you go and buy one from your local Primark or whatever? But to write... We know where you live. Don't sign it. You just disgraceful. First of all, you're cowardly because everybody knows you're not going to do anything. If he does sign it, you're not going to do a thing about it. What are you going to do? Go and knock on his door. You're not going to do anything about it. So why say it if you're not going to do it? But to to even do it is just your scumbags. That's it's really you know. And the more I talk about it, the more it's annoying. So I'm not going to talk about it anymore. I'm going to move on. Um, David Ornstein uh, has reported that Aston Villa have made a second offer for Emile Smith-Rowe. This time, 30 million. The first bid was 25. This one has also been rejected. To me, I do wonder... If they're getting, if they're getting encouragement from somewhere, maybe from Smith Rowe's camp, because the contract negotiations between Smith Rowe and Arsenal don't seem to be going anywhere. 
mean, they've been talking now for about six months. So I wonder, are they getting encouragement from somewhere that there's a possibility Arsenal would sell at a certain price? Now, they may well just be interested in the player and that might be it. But it, it to go back with a second bid that's only five million higher than the first bid would tell me that the rebuffle that they got or rebuttal, rebuffal, like whichever the word is, wasn't as strong as has been made out in the press. Like if someone came to you and said, can I buy your house for 250 grand? And you hummed and hawed, they might go, well, I'll give you 260. If you said no straight away, they'd probably come back in with a much more sub- substantial offer, like 350. So if someone came to you and said, can we buy this player for 25 million? And you were like, no, he's not for sale. Wouldn't their next bid be like 40 or wouldn't they just go away? Rather than come back and say, well, we'll give you 30 for him. Now, in a way, it's funny because Arsenal fans have been fawning over the idea of Arsenal buying Jack Grealish for years. And there was never really a chance of them getting Jack Grealish at this point because, I mean, Villa and Arsenal are kind of neck and neck in in where they are. And Villa have owners that care and more competent people running their club. Um, It would be a a strange move for Grealish. Now, look, it's Arsenal. It's still a, a huge club. It's still a big move. But Given where they are, given what would be around them, it wouldn't be ideal. Um, so maybe it's a little bit like when Barcelona th- tried for a couple of years to buy Verratti and PSG just got the hump and went, right, if you're going to try and do that, we're just going to take Neymar off you. Maybe it's it's Villa just saying, right, well, if you, you, you try to unsettle, Grealish now, we'll do it to one of your players. Um, apparently, Arsenal are in the hunt for a number of players. Um, they hope to make four to five significant signings. Uh, Mert Mulder, the uh, Sassuolo and Turkey right-back, is among their options for that position. He's a good player. He is. I, he wouldn't be top of my list, but he's, he's certainly a good player, and at the right price, he, he makes sense. Um, they're in talks over Aaron Ramsdale, which I just think is hilarious. I really just think it's hilarious that that's where they'd look uh, for a goalkeeper. Um, Ben White looks like look, looks likely. Lakonga looks likely. Uh, James Madison apparently not looking likely. I would imagine that's largely down to funding. Now, Leicester to Arsenal right now clearly a step down in terms of the level of the team. But Arsenal are a much bigger club than Leicester. And it's London and it's, you know, it's got to be appealing. So I could imagine that Madison might be interested in, in going to Arsenal, being the focal point of the team. And being part of what could be a very exciting three behind the striker in Saka, him and Smith Rowe. Now, if I was Leicester, there would be no deal unless I was getting Smith Rowe back along with a big bag of cash. And I might even propose that deal if I'm Leicester. You can have Madison, we want 60 million for him, or we want Smith Rowe and 30, or you Smith Rowe and 25, whatever it is. Um, Leicester always make a bit, well, they don't always, but for the last four or five years, they've always made one big sale. Be it Kante, be it Greenwood, uh, <clears throat> Greenwood, no, not Greenwood. What am I talking about? Drinkwater, um, Maguire, Chilwell, Mares. Those five have gone in the last five summers. I've mixed up the 
the years they went, but you Kante went first, then Drinkwater, then Mares, then Maguire, and now Chilwell. They've all left. Uh, funnily enough, three of them to Chelsea. Um, I think Leicester will sell someone. I think they would rather sell Madison than Tielemans. I think they'd much rather keep Tielemans. I think Madison is more replaceable for them because they can play Tielemans in that more advanced role with Sumari and Ndidi behind. His creativity can be replaced by a combination of Tielemans and Harvey Barnes. The set pieces will be missed, obviously. They still need to bring in someone on the right. And again, like I say, if they could get Smith Rowe, bring him and play him off the right, Barnes off the left, Tielemans is your 10, Samari and Ndidi as a, as, a, as a duo in midfield. And then whichever striker, be it Ianacho, be it Vardy, be it Patsandaka, whichever one. There's something in that. I don't think Arsenal have the money to buy Madison this summer. They've obviously done a couple of deals over the last few years where they've backloaded deals like the Nicholas Pepe one where they paid over the valuation so they could pay a small amount up front with a, a long time. I think it's like seven years or something of installments they'll be paying for uh, for Pepe. I don't know if Leicester would be willing to do something like that, but I, th- I think they'd take over four or five years. Um, but yeah, I, I think Leicester, if they had the choice, they would rather sell Madison than Yuri Thielemans. And I don't know what the price on on Madison would be. 60 million is just a figure I threw out. It could be more, it could be less. Uh, I think before he had the last couple of years with injuries, say if we go back 18 months, they probably would have wanted 70, 75 for him, but I, he's had a couple of injuries. His form hasn't been particularly great. Um, I, I think he's available, though. I do think he's available. Uh, right, we'll wrap up with the gossip then and get done. Manchester City may turn their attention to Barcelona and France forward Antoine Griezmann as an alternative to Harry Kane. Um, no, they won't. Absolutely no, they won't. Uh, they may look at a different striker than Kane, but it won't be Griezmann. Jesse Lingard has been offered a new three-year deal at Manchester United. Why? Do not sign that contract, Mr. Lingard. I know you love the club. Go and play somewhere. Liverpool are definitely interested in signing Kingsley Coleman from Bayern Munich and are in contact with his management. He's a tremendous player. Um, there's, the injuries are, are a very big concern and there's some questionable things in his personal life about four years ago that I don't know that Liverpool would overlook. Uh, the injuries, though, I, I think the injuries would just rule this. Now, he's a, he's a fantastic player, but I think the injuries would, would rule it out. Um, Inter Milan have contacted Arsenal over Hector Bell, oh sorry, contacted Hector Bellerin's agents as they look for a replacement for Ashraf Hakimi. It looks like Hakimi is off to PSG. Um, they can do much better than Bellerin. They really can. If you want, just ring Norwich. Max Ahrens would be a really good wing back replacement for Ashraf Hakimi. Now, a lot of clubs will be in for Ahrens, but for me, he'd be one. Ridley Baku, I'd be in for him as well. Either of those two would do. Uh, certainly wouldn't be looking at Hector Bellerin. Um, Granit Xhaka all but confirmed his exit from the Premier League, from Premier League club Arsenal to join AS Roma during a Euro 2020 press conference. 
it's one of the worst kept secrets that that deal is ongoing. It's just a matter of them sorting it out between them. Uh, Welsh midfielder Aaron Ramsey still hopes he has a future at Juventus and is not trying to move away from Turin. Yeah, because he wants to get all his money. That's the be-all and end-all of it. No one's going to match that contract, so he's going to stick around. Um, Manchester United are meeting with the agents of Ren midfielder Eduardo Camavinga next week to trash out a deal. I I doubt it. I, I don't think so. I think this has come out to try and force PSG to get a giddy-up and get that deal done. Um... Remember, Rennes say they want 100 million for him. United aren't going to pay 100 million for a player if they're buying Sancho as well. So, I don't think so. Uh, West Ham midfielder Felipe Anderson could be on his way back to Lazio after the club reop- uh, club open talks to re-sign the 28-year-old Brazilian. Um, I'd love to see him under Sarri. I'd really like to see that. I don't know if they have the money, but they were linked with Jordan Shakiri. I'd rather have Felipe Anderson than Jordan Shakiri, so yeah, I, I think that's that's fair enough. Um Borussia Dortmund will target PSV's English forward Noni Mudeki as a replacement for Jaden Sancho is expected to join Manchester United in a seventy seven million pound deal. This seventy seven million is weird though, because Dortmund have been very clear that it's eighty five million plus add ons. This seventy seven million figure seems to include add ons and came out in a Friday new a Friday drop. Where a lot of journalists seem to get it at the at the same time, which tells me that they were briefed by United. Um, it all seems a bit strange at the moment, anyway. But you know, it it does look likely that that's where he ends up. But I still think United are gonna ha- gonna have to come well up on the price. Um, PSV manager Roger Schmidt admits Daniel Malin is set to leave this leave the club this summer. Liverpool are among the clubs interested in the 22 year old. He's a very good player. Very, very talented. He'd make sense for a lot of clubs. Uh, Southampton are close to completing a deal for Brest's French defender Roman Perrault and are also interested in Adam Armstrong. Adam Armstrong would make sense, uh, especially if they think they could lose Danny Ings, but he could be a good partner for Ings as well. Uh, Perrault's a good defender. He'll help them. Two years after... Turning Arsenal down, Leicester and Belgium midfielder Dennis Pryat could sign for them. I doubt it. Um, ben White says he does not know if it's true. Does not sorry, does not know what is true when it comes to the rumor he is moving to Arsenal for fifty million. Well, according to rumors, he has been telling people that he is joining Arsenal. So it does look like he is uh, heading that way. It looks like Arsenal are going to pay the money. Uh, it's foolishness, but it is what it is. Arsenal are also interested in Renato Sanchez and have asked the French club Lille to keep them updated on any developments. That's from 19minute.com, so we'll put that in the bin. Uh, Liverpool have rejected a bid from Swiss club FC Basel from, for Liam Miller and want in excess of one million for the striker. Um, I, I don't know what to make of this. I mean, he's never ever going to play for Liverpool. It's just never ever going to happen. He's also not a striker. He's a, he's a wide player. But he's never going to play for Liverpool. In his entire career, he's played once in an FA Cup game. I think he came off the bench. Oh, he started against Shrewsbury. Yeah. Started against Shrewsbury. Just let the boy leave. 
let the guy leave. He's 21, be 22 soon. He's never going to play at Liverpool. Just let him leave. Give him, give him the ball, whatever they want to pay. That's fine. Um, Spain midfielder Marcus Lariente says he is happy at Atletico Madrid and the 26 year old intends to stay at Spanish club this summer. Uh, I hadn't heard or read anything to the contrary of that. I didn't know anyone was actually interested in him. He had a great season, but I, I think it's just fool's gold. Don't think he's the player he showed last season. Um, we'll wait and see if he can replicate that goal scoring form for another couple of years. Manchester United have had an informal, have, have had an informal offer for Sevilla and France centre back Jules Conde rejected by the La Liga side. Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. Uh, last but not least, Fulham manager Scott Parker is set to leave his role within the next 48 hours, take charge of Bournemouth with the current Cherries boss, Jonathan Woodgate, told his contract will not be renewed at the end of the month. My assumption on that is that Fulham were waiting to get compensation from Bournemouth, and that's now been, that's now been sorted. I missed yesterday's gossip. We have time. We always have time for gossip on this show. Liverpool have inquired about the availability of Kylian Mbappe. And I inquired about the availability of Ferrari. We have as much chance. Um, Inter Milan's Romelu Lukaku is all but ruled out a Premier League return. With the 28-year-old instead tipped to replace Robert Lewandowski at Bayern Munich. He's actually ruled out a move altogether and said he is staying at Inter Milan. So let's stop the shenanigans. Tottenham are in talks to sign Jap- uh, 22-year-old Japanese defender Takehiro Tamayuso from Bologna in a deal likely to cost around 15 million. Very, very good player. Can play right back or right side of a three. Very, very good player. Big fan of him. Uh, I think that'd be a clever move. I don't know how true it is, but it'd be a clever move. Real Madrid are lining up Wesley Fafana as a replacement for Rafa Varane. I doubt it. I really, really doubt that there's any truth in that at all. Uh, Jaden Sancho will earn 250000 a week if he complete, completes the move to Manchester United. More than du- double what he currently gets. I would imagine it's probably quadruple or five times what he currently gets at Bayern Munich or at Borussia Dortmund. Don't pay huge wages. Um, I also have read in other places that it's three hundred and fifty grand a week. So who knows? Who knows what the truth is? Uh, Dortmund have identified Daniel Malin as their first choice to replace Sancho. I think that's been around for a while. Would make sense. Uh, I think then Mudeke would take his kind of starring role for uh, for PSV uh, rather than just sort of being a a supportive player. Um, Manchester City's hopes of convincing Raheem Sterling to sign a new deal have been hurt by the club offering him as a make-weight to Tottenham in a deal for Harry Kane. Uh, Yeah, I would imagine so. I'd imagine that once a player hears that you've offered him to another club, um, he probably he probably doesn't really want to sign a, a new contract with you. Uh, United Camavinga nonsense. Uh, Manchester City ha- have added Reese James to their wish wish list, with Pep Guardiola set to be a, an admirer of the twenty one year old. Nonsense, just nonsense stuff. These people come out with. Barcelona playmaker Philippe Coutinho dreams of a return to Liverpool, but the Reds do not have any plans to bring the Brazilian back to Liverpool. Another option could be uh, Inter Milan or Leicester. Uh, this is just somebody going, 
right, well, he used to be managed by this player, this guy, he used to play for these clubs. Let's try and make something up. Uh, Coutinho dreamed of playing for Barcelona. It hasn't worked out. That's on him. Aston Villa are to test Chelsea's resolve with a £40 million bid for Tammy Abraham, who scored 26 goals in 40 games during a loan spell and helped them get promoted. I think Tammy Abraham will be a great signing for Villa. I think he'd be a really, really clever signing for Villa. Um, Pats and Dacca to Leicester City. I think that's all booked. He's basically confirmed that himself. Uh, so that's all fine. Ajax are interested in signing Tottenham winger Stephen Bergwijn. The Premier League club are reluctant to sell. They should not sell. They should let the new manager come in, work with him, and then see what he wants to do. Real Madrid boss Carlo Ancelotti wants the club to make a move for Diogo Delos. That might be one of the most ludicrous rumours I've ever read. Why on earth would he want them to do that? AC Milan are interested in signing three Chelsea players, Hakim Ziyech, Ali Giroud and Tomeo Bakayoko. Now, they already had Bakayoko there, decided not to keep him, have since added other midfielders. I, I just don't think there's any truth to that one. Uh, Leeds, West Ham and Southampton are all interested in Barcelona fullback Junior Firpo. With the Spaniard keen to leave the new camp this season. It looks like Leeds, this morning there is a report that Leeds have agreed a £15 million fee for him. I think that's a great signing for Leeds if they can get him. He was brilliant at Real Betis. The Barca move hasn't worked largely because they have Jordi Alba. And they didn't really need Firpo, but he is a very good player going forward. Uh, Barcelona will target Marcus Alonso if Firpo were to leave. Although Inter Milan are also managing his, uh, monitoring his situation. It's amazing that you can be flat out bad for a number of years at a top club and still attract the attention of other top top clubs. Um, and lastly, Burnley will listen to offers for James Tarkovsky, who has been linked with a move to West Ham. He's at a contract next summer, so it makes sense. It does make sense to start listening to offers. I think he's ideal for West Ham. I think he's ideal for Moyes. Moyes most likely will want a... Um, a Phil Jagielka type of centre-back. And I think he used Craig Dawson in that role last season. I think Tarkovsky's a much better player at this point and would be a really good signing. Moyes is trying to rebuild his Everton team. Excuse me, his Everton team. And this makes sense for West Ham. That's it then. That is the show. Thanks for listening as always. Um, I'll hopefully be back on Twitter soon. If not on my own account, on a new one which I'll get Guy and, and Gags and a few others to tweet out so you know where it is. Uh, but do continue to listen every day, 4pm. Tell your friends. Spread the good word. Thanks a million. See you later. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.